Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, and my co-host, Stephanie Greenwald, is back with me this week. So, Stephanie, how is life? Your senior pastor is getting ready to go on sabbatical. You are doing, and you're hiring a new youth director, so you've been a little busy. Yes, the pandemic has not left us with uh, nothing to do. So we're we're excited about good things happening and also uh, enjoying ramping up some of our Oklahoma WCA chapter events that we're having across the state. As you know, we've had some changes in uh, what's been going on with uh, the called general conference. So we're trying to get the word out about that. So lots of good things to be doing. How are you? Doing pretty well. I was in uh, Kansas City last week for the uh, cohort, exponential cohort on church multiplication. Looking forward to going to Montgomery at the end of April. We'll be talking more about that. And we will have podcasts coming from Montgomery as we interview some of the some of the leaders in this movement and some of those who are speaking at, at the event, uh, the global gathering and the global legislative assembly. Looking forward to all of that. But today we're we're taking a little bit of a turn away from all the nuts and bolts stuff we've been doing about WCA and the Global Methodist Church. And we're talking with uh, Kevin Watson, who's been on our show before. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Kevin is is Associate Professor of Wesleyan and Methodist Studies at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. And he has a new book coming out, and I really wanted to get Kevin on to talk about this book, because in all the stuff that we've talked about with this movement toward a new Methodism, we get so bogged down, I think, in the details about books of discipline. Now we have two of them, and we get bogged down in a lot of details around those things. But sort of the the target of what we're after is, is the essence of Kevin's new book, which is titled Perfect Love, Recovering Entire Sanctification, The Lost Power of the Methodist Movement. So we're going to talk about entire sanctification today. And Kevin, you make a bold statement at the beginning of this book that really sets the tone, I think. You say this, I will make a simple argument above all else. God raised up the people called Methodists to preach, teach, and experience our core doctrine. So how does this doctrine of entire sanctification mark us as Methodists and mark us as as unique in the Christian world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I wrote the book out of a specific sense of kind of calling that as as Methodism in the U.S. is is and globally is experiencing kind of some realignments, um, division, and and um, new expressions that it felt like it would really be a, a missed opportunity if new expressions of Methodism were built without deep clarity about kind of doctrinal clarity and purpose. Um, and that I think one of the reasons why the United Methodist Church in particular has, has come to a place of such profound dysfunction um, is because it, it's been in the midst of, I think, a protracted identity crisis and has really forgotten who it is theologically, uh, has forgotten kind of how it got to where it is. And I think there came a point in our history where people sort of feel like we've arrived, we're big and we're important and we're influential. Uh, and then they started pursuing that more and more and forgot what the reasons were for their, their success in the first place. And then sort of predictably started experiencing decline. And so 
Um, for me, this was a chance to try to say, like, let's let's make sure that this key doctrine, which is, I think, really exciting, but also kind of scary. Um, and, and if we're honest at, at the same time, um, but let's lift it up and let's risk wrestling with it and um, doing the best that we can to, to sort of be all that God has intended for us to be and to be the full gift of the body of Christ that that we are at our best. I think it's so important for not just Methodists, but for the world to hear what you're saying in this book. Would you go ahead and for our listeners, just define for them uh, what entire sanctification is, and then also how do we pursue it? Yeah. That's, uh, so part of what I've, I've struggled with in writing the book and teaching and speaking about entire sanctification is I think sometimes I end up talking about everything that comes before it as a part of it. And so there, you can parse it in really precise, careful ways. And um, I think there are some, some scholars that have that as kind of their particular gift, but I think entire sanctification is um, you know, it's the, it's the step that comes after justification and sanctification and an ongoing process of growth and holiness. Um, One of the most, I think, interesting and, probably, I I say in the chapter on what entire sanctification is, part of what I think is most controversial about entire sanctification isn't actually entire sanctification, but is what Wesley thinks happens at justification and regeneration, which is that he thinks that people who have been justified and born again no longer commit outward sin. And he really doubles down on 1 John 5.18, kind of cites it multiple times in his sermon, Christian Perfection. And he actually dedicates the majority of that sermon not to talking about entire sanctification, the sermon is called Christian perfection, but not to defining Christian perfection, but arguing for what should already be the case in the lives of those who are seeking Christian perfection. Um, And then he says, so kind of what is it if it isn't freedom from outward sin? Um, He describes it as uh, like freedom from unholy tempers and unholy affections um, so that it is, uh, a life that really has been released from all of the ways in which we experience bondage uh, to sin. Um, so, and, and like Ken Collins talks about um, justification is freedom from outward sin. Um, regeneration is freedom from inward sin. And then entire sanctification is freedom from the being of sin, kind of from the, the root of sin itself. Uh, and I think that's a, a helpful kind of way of parsing it. For me, when I, I kind of want to enter into just a proclamation mode and just say, like, really, who we're supposed to be are people who have this audacious optimism, the boldest optimism in any churches in our communities that, that we proclaim that in this life, we can actually experience everything that Jesus died for us to have and everything that Jesus raised from the dead for us to have, that we can experience all of it. We, we don't have to sort of continue to to give ourselves in part to Christ and give ourselves in, in part to sin and kind of have this tug of war in our lives, but that people in our communities who are struggling with real challenges, real problems, real places of, of feeling stuck can actually experience dramatic life-changing breakthrough, healing, transformation. Uh, and so, so there's... I kind of have struggled as I've talked about this with kind of doing two things. Part of it is I'm wanting to say like, I want all of this, like all the stuff before that we haven't experienced that. I want us to experience that. And I want us to also experience the final thing, which is this kind of last piece where God does the last thing where now there is like the way in which sin was still capable of taking back over is kind of broken. And, and there's, there's complete 
uh, empowerment and transformation and uh, breakthrough uh, from from sin itself, from the the potential or the being of sin. I think that's one of the parts of this doctrine that is scary for people because it's often misunderstood. I did a series last fall where I taught through 15 of of Wesley's sermons, and now, uh, shameless plug here, I'm doing another podcast called Wednesdays with Wesley, where I'm going through one of Wesley's sermons each week. And I know you've been doing the same thing on your blog, Kevin. You've been doing Mm. a, a blog sort of look at Wesley's sermons. And one of the interesting things is I taught this to my congregation that that emerged was this sort of skepticism about whether power over sin is is a real thing. I mean, a lot of people doubt that that has can, can be a, a power in their lives that they can have power over that. That you know, I'm talking to a young mom who says, "Well, you know, I I intend to do this, but it seems to keep coming back all the time." And so, what does Wesley really mean by having power over sin? And and you cited some of the biblical evidence for it there in in First John, where Wesley spends a lot of time in these sermons, particularly on on Christian perfection and things like that. What does that look like from a practical standpoint in the life of the Christian? Because I think this is one of those really unique doctrines that that uh, that I think if we recapture it, it can really be transformational. So, so many so many Christian doctrinal uh, constructs are are really pessimistic about this as opposed to Wesleyanism. So how how would you mm-hmm. describe it in a in a practical sense for for people who are wondering about what do you mean I have power over sin? Yeah, so I think that Wesley tends to he kind of speaks in in two different modes, and one of them is that he's going to be resolute that our expectations for the Christian life or life in Christ must be defined by the witness of scripture and not by anything else, at least primarily. Uh, And so that if we, what I think what ends up happening when people argue against entire sanctification or even just the possibility of any real holiness period um, comes from looking internally or looking at other people and being like, how could you actually think that people could experience um, some kind of empowerment or breakthrough where sin isn't what's sort of ruling their lives. Uh, and Wesley, Wesley just wants to keep saying, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but what I know is that these are the promises of scripture uh, and that this is what, this is what Jesus has done uh, through the cross and through the resurrection. And that that's what defines possibility. That's what defines potential. Um, and the, the, the place where I, one of my favorite things to do when I was teaching at Seattle Pacific University with undergrad students was I did a, I taught a gen ed required course there um, because it's a free Methodist school. They require all of their students to take a class in Christian theology. And I would kind of throughout the semester do like one class on each of the major Christian traditions. And on Methodism, I would really spend at least half the class on the way of like a quick going through the way of salvation and focusing on entire sanctification because I wanted them to really see sort of this is this is one of the most distinctive and sort of challenging offerings of of this part of the body of Christ. And it was fascinating to me because the students found it to be impossible to believe. Like it was one of the times where I would get the most vocal pushback in the class all semester. 
And one of the things that helped me to sort of articulate is, is I, I love how undergrads are so honest. Like they're not like, oh, that, I know I'm supposed to believe this, but I don't really, but I'll pretend like I do because that's what good Christians do. Like, just be like, no, I don't think that's real. Like, I don't, I, I can't imagine that that's actually true. And, and the place where I would end up really pushing them where I felt like there was actually then some openness to like, oh, maybe I am, maybe the things that are telling me what's possible are the wrong things was I would say, look, you have to decide in your theology what's more powerful. Is it the power of sin that so that it's necessary and inevitable in the lives of Christians? Or is it the grace of God that has been expressed particularly through the power of the resurrection, where Jesus has has not only seemed to have been defeated by sin, but killed by sin. Um, and and is has seems to like it seems like we just totally lost, but then then you have Easter, and Easter is something that impacts um, the gospel from start to finish, it's it's immersed, you know, the, I love the kind of idea that every Sunday is a little Easter. We don't just celebrate it one Sunday a year. It's It marks the Christian calendar um, with a weekly rhythm, too. Um, and I think that that's, that's one of the things that Wesley does so well, I think, is to press on, like, this has to be, we have to have our lives as followers of Jesus be defined by Jesus, not be defined by the brokenness that we see around us. Um, and that, you know, Wesley is, is willing to just frankly cite Matthew 548, like be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Um, and I think that that part of where this is helpful for me is that in our, in our kind of cultural moment, we're much more comfortable talking about what's possible because of our experience. Experience is sort of um, reigns supreme for many people. And so it can be helpful to say, you know, just to sort of take that head on and disrupt it and say, does our experience define for Christians what's possible or does what God has done for us through Christ define what's possible? And it's not very hard to then sort of argue towards, you know, that it has to be what God has done through Christ. Otherwise we're lost. Otherwise we're without hope. And we're, you know, we, we shouldn't even be pretending to be Christians because it's just a waste of time. Like as Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we're to be pitied above all people because our faith is worthless and we're just stuck in our sins. Uh, and it's just all, it's all a house of cards, right? It's just a kind of mirage uh, and we're wasting our time trying to sort of prop it up, but that that's not the case, right? Thanks be to God. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Um, and so we know how the story ends, but we also believe that the, the sort of already of the gospel, there is an already aspect. There's a way in which there is a, a real change that's happened through um, the work of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection that, that changes what, what's possible for us in this life. And I think that's, that's the, that's the place where, you know, I, I think that this book where it will get pushback from people will be what I said in the kind of in the beginning, will just be people persisting in kind of very low expectations of what it means to be a Christian um, and not, not believing that like there can be real victory over sin, that there can be real change in the lives of Christians. Um, and that's, you know, we've, we've done a, our own marketing at times has not been very good even recently um, with, with Christian leaders who have had a tremendous impact and with public visible personas and then have had pretty profound and devastating moral failings that were, were hidden for a long time but eventually came out. And, and so that, that kind of contributes to this, I think, kind of ongoing pessimism. But I've also found that, especially for younger folks, there, the, when I, at least with the undergrads I was engaging, it was, I recognized that there was this unfortunate combination that they were raised 
being told by the the adults in their lives you can be anything you put your mind to basically like set your sights on like the most highest aspirations yes if you want to be a major league baseball player you can do it if you put your mind to it if you want to be an astronaut you can do it if you put your mind to it um and i think but then they sort of in college we're starting to confront the reality that like I, I'm not going to be a professional baseball player. I'm actually not that good. And I've done the best I could. And I, I mean, I, I always use that example because I loved baseball and I, my entire career as a baseball player was just trying to make the next team and just not get cut. I was never like an all-star, but I loved it enough. I was w- willing to work really hard, but there was a point where it was just painfully obvious. Like it, this is ending soon. You know, this is like, you've gone as far as you can go and it's not really any, I mean, I, for me, it was one year on a division three baseball team in college, um, which means no scholarships. And I got three at bats that season. So it was, you know, like it was, it was fun and it was a good experience, but that was, I wasn't going to be, I was never going to play for the Astros. And I think when people realize that, even though they've been told that their whole lives, then it almost shifts to this like opposite expectation of like, we actually can't be very good. And so there's really high expectations, but then like a kind of, crashing into reality that then leads to like a a very elevated sort of pessimism. And and then people, there's this really kind of sad, I think almost like dissatisfaction with life. Like my life has not gone the way I thought it was going to be. And, and so now I'm just going to kind of start coasting and work hard not to get my expectations up too high. And to me, the beauty of the gospel is that we like, this is what's so awesome about preaching is that, yeah, I'm not going to preach major league baseball possibilities to you. But if I preach Jesus to you, like Jesus actually is able to do the thing that seems impossible to you and seems miraculous to you. And so if I can get you and me to stop looking at ourselves and obsessing about what we can do in our own strength, but to really look at Jesus and to put our full faith and trust in Jesus, we'll find that that actual transformation really does happen in that space. That as we are filled with the love of God, it changes us and it enables us to actually love God and to love other people in ways that, that change everything. You know, okay. So Kevin, before I ask you this next question, I really just have to say thank you to you for saying these things because people need to hear this hope. They need to hear that there is this incredible hope in who Jesus is, because I think so many Christians fall prey to Uh, believing that the Christian life is just a series of me being redeemed. And then I fall short again and I sin and then I get back up and then I fall short again and I sin and I get back up. And there's, you know, if you think that that's the entirety of the Christian life, there's not a whole lot of hope in that. Mm -hmm. Praise be to God that he can redeem us, but there's not a whole lot of hope in this idea that I'm just going to keep falling short. I'm just going to keep failing every single time. And that's what I love about you opening our eyes to this doctrine that's been in our blood for so long, but has been forgotten by the church because so many people are not willing to step up and, and say what needs to be said. And I love how in your book, you talk about this audacious optimism, like we've been talking about here. Uh, and I think that there it's, it's such a contrast to the pessimism that many Christians have about about life and Mm -hmm. sin. So as a pastor myself, and I'm sure there's a lot of pastors listening, but even just for our lay people that are listening, I believe it's our responsibility to communicate what entire sanctification is to the people in our sphere of influence. So can you just share with our listeners, how do we communicate this in a way that is effective so that people can understand? 
Yeah. So I think that the, as you kind of already have, have said, um, the, the hope and the, the goal is to communicate hope and expectation and possibility. Um, it, at our worst, I think Methodists, when they've offered holiness, have, have really ended up offering condemnation and judgment um, or legalism. You know, the, the way you can know you're holy is be sure you just don't do these things that are on our sin list. And then you're all it's all good, even though you you have hatred in your heart towards people and um, actually despise the, you know, the moral law of God. But you're following out of a kind of um slavish obedience instead of love for God and a heart that's really been, been wooed and, and tr- changed. So I think that's, that's the first step really is uh, I, I think that pastors oftentimes in their desire not to condemn also excuse sin and end up embracing sin. Um, and I, I think that's a mistake. I think that there's a way to preach grace that is gracious, but also calls people to the all that God has for them, the more that God has for them. Uh, and so for me, I mean, really the best way to communicate this is, is to stick to scripture. Um, there are some, some really powerful um, scripture passages. First um, Thessalonians, really all of chapter four through chapter five um, is, is about the possibility of holiness. It's, you know, it says it's God's will that you be sanctified. It's not my idea. It's not John Wesley's idea. It's scripture says it's God's idea and it's God's will. Um, and if it's God's will, then it must be God who makes it possible. And, um, and then at the end of first Thessalonians, it, it actually talks about may God sanctify you entirely. The NRSV actually uses the language of entire sanctification, um, in it. And so this is Im- important for people to see because it would be mistaken to, to make it sound like you don't, what you don't want to communicate as a pastor is here's a really cool idea that John Wesley came up with. That's not actually what we're trying to say. What Wesley's saying is entire sanctification is a doctrine that's found in scripture. And he breathed life into Methodists to actually articulate it clearly for the rest of the body of Christ to hear because it hadn't been heard in the way that it needed to be. Um, and so this, that, that's kind of, I think, the, the, the big idea. The other thing for me, as far as communication is, I think that we sometimes in the church, like, you know, just play church. We, we talk about, we sort of keep it away from the hard stuff, the things that are almost impossible to manage the, the places where life is just too messy and you don't want to look over the abyss because it's terrifying. And when, so then we just dance around kind of like tweaking our lives here and there a little bit. And, and I think that one of the, the ways to communicate this is to actually lean into the fact that people in an increasingly post-Christian context, they come to church because they're desperate. They're desperate for an encounter with God. They want to know if this God is real, actually cares about them and can make a real difference in their lives. And so I find that it's actually exciting and, and people sit, they lean forward. They want to hear more when you actually press into the like, look, we know that there's, there's things that are going on in your life that, you know, are like a nightmare to you and you don't know how to wake up. Like you don't know how to stop. But, and we know one who is able, like we, we actually can connect you with the one who can bring breakthrough into your life and can, can set you back on, uh, put your feet on a rock again. Um, and, and who, who knows everything that's happened and loves you still loves you deeply and desperately and perfectly. And that's why, you know, the, the image of perfect love is, is helpful because it has kind of a double meaning. It's first about God's perfect love for us, which we can rely on. And I think that some of the reasons that we 
kind of wrestle with like, is this possible? It's because we haven't experienced perfect love. And so we who haven't received perfect love think that it can't be possible to actually love completely because we haven't been loved completely. And, and that that's, so that's part of what's, you know, to, to be offered to, I think in communicating is, you know, God will, will ultimately have nothing to do with sin, won't be in sin's presence, won't embrace it, won't tolerate it. But God also is completely unashamedly and entirely for us and has sent his only son um, because he loves us so much. And he is so determined to rescue us and free us, not just a little bit, not just to bring us back still in love with darkness, but um, the rescue operation is entire. It's complete. um, And it, it brings us wholly into the light if we cooperate with what God wants to do. I. I'm struck as you were speaking about not only how audacious this doctrine is and biblical, but that Wesley doesn't just leave it there. He's not content to just say, we're going to preach this doctrine. He actually organizes around Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. and structures the movement around this doctrine. And uh, I want to jump ahead here to something that you say in the book you say that I am convinced that any form of Methodism that is not clearly connected to the doctrine of entire sanctification has no future. Any new movements or expressions of Methodism must place our grand depositum at the center of our faith and practice. So Wesley clearly had a practice that was connected to this, which you've written a lot about in the past. And as we think about a new Methodism, how does how does how do we how can we structure ourselves to make this the center around which everything else revolves? Yeah, that's that that's really helpful. Um, thank you for that. The I, I have become I'm actually trying to write a history of the Methodist movement in the United States that is more than just United Methodism, but is kind of the whole the whole broad family. And um, the I hope the title will stick is Doctrine, Spirit, and Discipline. Um, the Wesleyan tradition in the United States. And the, the goal is, is to argue that we started with a doctrine, spirit, and discipline. And Wesley himself, I think in a prophetic mode, actually says, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist in Europe or America, but I am afraid lest they become a, a dead sect, right? Having the form of power without a form of religion without the power. Um, and that that will happen unless they hold fast to the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. So he identifies doctrine, spirit, and discipline as like the criteria to evaluate Methodism's own spiritual vitality. Um, and I think that at, in my in my experience in United Methodism, there have been some, um, I mean, I'll just be blunt, I would say appalling summaries of what's distinctive about United Methodism or Methodism or the Wesleyan tradition. And they're usually just common Christian affirmations and embarrassingly so, Um, or they're sometimes at their worst, they are, they just reek of arrogance or pretension to me, like saying Methodism or Methodists are people who aren't afraid to think and use their minds. Like what, what kind of obnoxious statement is that to the rest of the body of Christ? Like you are the ignorant rubes. We're the ones who are not afraid to read and think about what our faith is. Um, And so for me, that's, that's, I mean, I wrestle with that a lot in seminary and thinking like, so if I'm a United Methodist, like what am I actually offering to my people when I'm in the church 
beyond like just scripture and how do I tell them about like, how do I defend the fact that we exist as a division within the body of Christ? And if, what if somebody just asks me like, well, should we just close up shop and just be Christian? Um, and, and my like way of wrestling with that was that you actually had to go like deeper. You have to go like you, you assume the creed, because if you don't assume something like the Nicene creed, then you're not, it's we're, now we're doing interreligious dialogue. We're not actually doing like ecumenical conversation. Um, we're doing, it's not clear whether we're all Christians or not, because we've eradicated the sort of way of knowing this is the broader, this is the basic unity that Presbyterians and Methodists have, or Baptists and Methodists have, or Catholics and Methodists have. Um, and so you have to go deeper than that and not just say like, oh, to, to be a Methodist, we have to defend the bodily resurrection of Jesus. No, that's actually something that Orthodox Christians believe, which is just another way of saying nice. It's a polite way of saying Christians believe. Um, and and so what are the distinctives? And I, I think there's a distinct doctrine and a distinct practice or distinct discipline. Um, and for me, it's the doctrine of entire sanctification, as we've been talking about, because that's what Wesley says. Um, and I think the distinct practice is um, the practice that Wesley referred to at times as Christian conferencing or um, social holiness. And all of these things really are just small group formation, small group accountability. And in Methodism, that was the class meeting and the band meeting. And these were ways that Methodists gathered together in order to encourage each other to actually pursue the fullness of salvation, right? To receive everything that God has for them and not to become complacent, not to grow weary and stop seeking or searching um, and to, to quit because Wesley knew that that was, that was a, a real tendency, a real possibility for people because he'd seen it happen many, many times. And he'd seen people who actually joined together and linked arms with each other, experience growth and transformation and real life change. Uh, and so, and, and the band meeting is the ultimate because the band meeting is actually about taking this head on, confessing sin for the sake of growth and holiness. Uh, and that they do that again in fidelity to the witness of scripture. James 5.16 is always cited when talking about the band meeting. And it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Um, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So confession of sin is for the sake of healing. It's for the sake of the sin being forgiven, but also, you know, the person having a power over it that they didn't, they didn't have before so they can walk in freedom from that sin. And so this isn't, it's not just me and Jesus. Wesley thinks that if we try to go it alone, we'll, we'll probably be taken out. Um, we probably won't get very far. And, uh, and we'll, and they, they were so convicted of this that they, Wesley actually stopped encouraging field preaching in places where they didn't have the resources to actually gather people who responded to the open air preaching, the evangelistic event. If they couldn't follow the evangelistic event up with organizing people and uniting them to each other, then they wouldn't do it in the first place because he tried some experiments of that and concluded that he has this really kind of arresting quote where he basically says, awakening people without gathering them together and uniting them with each other to watch over one another in love is only begetting children for the murderer. It's birthing Christians so that Satan can kill them. And, um, and he saw that happen over and over again. And, and so it was like, we're not doing this anymore. We're, we will basically preach the gospel in places where we can gather the faithful together, the people who respond and help them to be discipled, right. Help them learn how to, to actually follow Jesus. Cause if we don't, they won't figure out how to follow Jesus on their own. That's one of the reasons why we, as we work through, and we're going to talk about this in our next episode, the Accountable Discipleship Task Force says that this is an essential piece 
to what we need to be as as the the global Methodist Church that that we have to we have to have structures in place to make this a priority and to make this the the function of what we're about to make this the target that we're shooting at for growing people in Christ. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. This book, if this book doesn't convince you, I'm not sure that anything will. Um, I, I was sent an advanced copy by Seedbed and, you know, they asked for a little blurb quote. I don't know if it'll make the book when it's published, but I said, Kevin has given us a plainer account of Christian perfection <laughs> than even John Wesley did. This is a plainer account. So, uh, so maybe you can use that somewhere along the line down when you're, when you're promoting this, Kevin. That's great. Yeah. That's, I, I, I don't know. I'll, I, I'll let Seabed promote that. Cause if, if I'm not sure I'm comfortable saying that. I, 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 <laughs> well, I as a pastor, I would say I that. You saying that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Kevin, before we wrap up, I just want to ask you this one last question. You know, in the book, you express a belief that Methodism is ideally positioned to address the cultural challenges the church is facing. And this part was interesting to me because you also suggest that maybe the decline in cultural Christianity is actually a good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So tell us how my clergy and lay leaders seize this moment of where we are in culture and with Christianity. Yeah. So to start with the last part, one of the reasons I think it's a good thing is I think that uh, Methodism and and I think a lot of American Christianity for for several generations has been doing ministry in its own strength. And really what it's been offering the world is itself. Um, And it's been it's been sort of telling people that you can call yourself a Christian and that will actually bring you greater respectability in the world. Um, it will maybe even, you know, like there was a period of time where you would go to a church because it was going to give you greater like business contacts, right? Like this is a place to go to actually like have upward mobility because it'll help make relational connections and so forth. And there, there are actually things to be said for Christians supporting and encouraging one another and and giving each other even preference and, and things like that. Um, but to, to say that sort of this is a worldly strategy for success and prosperity is quite problematic in a variety of ways, I think. And I, so I think that in, in a context where the culture is actually increasingly antagonistic towards the church, the thing that's good news about it is that it forces you to actually count the cost. And are you doing this because you love Jesus, you've met Jesus, Jesus has, has rescued you, and you want to to offer that to other people, you know, it's, 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 it really is in my mind, I've talked about this in other contexts, but it's similar to kind of being on a recovery program for an addict, like people who are addicts and know that they're addicts. There's like, there's a desire to evangelize other addicts because they've actually found recovery. They knew their life was in, in a complete downward spiral and eventually was going to cause them to lose everything they cared about, even their own life. Um, and, when they actually get to a place where they realize like it doesn't have to be this way, they want to go and rescue other people because they're so grateful for the hope that they've found and the new life that they've found and they've discovered. And it comes from a place of like actual encounter, right? With like, there's real change that's happened. And I think in this cultural moment, um, there are two things that I, I just find over and over again, that people are really hungry for. One is an encounter with 
real transformation. And I think particularly with the one who is able to transfer, transform you. And so you have people playing around with all kinds of, of other ways to encounter God, the, the only true God with crystals, new age ideas, and people, you know, having this buffet of like, well, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and Christians have home field advantage in this because we actually are proclaiming and know the only real true God. We know the creator of the heavens and the earth of all that is the one who breathes life into us and, you know, intentionally created each one of us with, with a, a intentionality and purpose. Um, and we, we know that that one is also able to rescue us from everything that comes against us, that seeks to take life and destroy and consume and so forth. And so we, we can usher people who are seeking into the presence of, of the living God, who is able to, to not just forgive and pardon them, but also change them and life changing radical ways that bring that kind of search for transcendence that, that I think many are looking for. And the other piece I think in our cultural moment is that people are hungry for community. Um, I, it's, it's fascinating to me because on the one hand, we live in a time where it seems to me that Christians are wanting to give more and more authority to technology. We're wanting to say yes to more and more things in technology. And I'll just admit that I've, I've really struggled like in the COVID kind of era with the way that pastors seem so enamored with the potential for online church, which I just think is exactly the backwards instinct. The church should always say what we do best is incarnate in-person gathering, you know, where we can lay hands on each other, we can pray for the sick, or we can actually be together. And I understand that COVID like disrupted that in a variety of ways, but it seems to me that some are wanting to lean into that and basically say more, like I want more of this. Um, and I think that actually what's happening culturally is that people are simultaneously spending more and more time on their devices, more and more time connecting virtually, and it's junk food. It's not, it's not, it's not substantive and it doesn't give real sustenance. And so there's actually, even though we feel like we're always connected, there's this sense of increasing isolation and loneliness in people as they scroll their Facebook feeds or Twitter or Instagram. Um, and, and the church at its best knows how to help people connect and define the authenticity and the intimacy and the vulnerability that I think people are, are yearning for. But in some, I think in some generations in particular, losing, like forgetting how to connect in person. Um, you know, I'm always interested thinking about my own childhood and, and growing up, hearing that there are some, some, you know, younger people today who are like dating by text or dating virtually. And I'm just like, stunned by that because I, I I can't like I can't imagine like not wanting to have been with that person like when I first met my wife I wanted to be in her presence I wanted to like hold her hand you know I wanted to I wanted to be with her and the idea of holding my phone you know and and sending emojis like is just such an obviously like it's 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 a false substitute that's less than the, the full thing that that we're intended to receive and so I think that that Christianity, you know, it's built upon the principle of the incarnation, that the, the limitation and the, the reality of like being enfleshed really matters. It's the way that God chose to express the, the final full plan of salvation. Uh, and so Christians at our best help people to meet that one, but also help people to connect with each other. Um, in incarnate embodied real ways. And I think, I think our culture is, is actually desperate for that. It's looking for ways 
And I think increasingly, this is why I tried to press on this with the class meeting in particular, I think one of the main places where evangelism will happen will actually be in community where people are actually doing life together and, and, you know, in person and then able to wrestle together with the hard questions of life. I think the alpha course is an example of something that, that does this really well. Like you have hospitality, you get people together and you start asking these hard questions and so forth. And there's something about that happening together that I think is part of what awakens faith in people and helps them to meet Jesus in a way that they hadn't before. I'm I'm struck as you're speaking about Wesley's sermon on the scripture way of salvation, which you have printed in its entirety in the book because it's such an important sermon in the canon. And the thing that strikes me is Wesley's definition of salvation He says, the salvation that is here spoken of is not what is frequently understood by that word, going to heaven, eternal happiness. He goes on and on. He said, the very words of the text itself put this beyond all question. You are saved. And so what you're talking about is a real salvation of the whole person in the present. That is not merely something that happens when we die or we're simply securing it for some some distant future but rather it's a, it's a transformation of the whole life right now. And that's, what's exciting to me about this. Yeah. Amen. Well, we want to thank you, Kevin, for joining us on this episode. And we want to tell people about the book. The title is perfect love recovering entire sanctification, the lost power of the Methodist movement. It's coming out in May, I believe. Yeah, that's right. I think May 15th is the launch date. May 15th. So make sure that you get a copy of this because I, as I said before, this is really a plainer account of a plainer account of Christian perfection. I mean, I've read Wesley's plain account of Christian perfection. It's not as plain as I'd like it to be. Um, this, this gets at something that you can take with your, with your congregation and study it. Because my my guess is that most congregations have not been exposed to this in any significant way. And this is really not only the ground of the early Methodism, but I think it's also the ground of our future for mm-hmm. Methodism as well. Stephanie, any last thoughts? No, I'm just so thankful, Kevin, to have you on the show. We always love having you here. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, we thank you for joining us. Again, you can email us your questions and comments at podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. Follow us on Twitter at WCA pod. We'll put a link in here for the book. Hopefully if there's a pre-order link, people can pre-order a copy and we'll look forward to no doubt talking to Kevin again somewhere down the road because these issues become important. He's one of the gifts to the church And so we're thankful for him, thankful for you joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time here on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. 